Good morning. I hope you are doing well this morning. As I was thinking about the uh, passage we will be in this morning, um, I could not help but think about the power of the gospel. You know, a man was born, he lived his life, he primarily invested in a very small group of people, one of whom would betray him. He was killed, and he rose again. This happened 2,000 years ago and over 6,000 miles away. And yet here in this, mor- this morning in this church in Oxford, Alabama, we are singing the praises of Jesus Christ and his work. His life and death and resurrection are the essence of the gospel. And this morning, 2,000 years and 6,000 miles removed from his earthly ministry, we still sing and praise and love the gospel. The fact that many of us here this morning would stand up and proclaim that the gospel has radically transformed our lives is an amazing example of the advancement of this gospel across the globe. Now, to the text this morning. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's prayer request in the form of an exhortation to the Thessalonians. Paul, in essence, exhorts them to pray for the victorious spread of the gospel so that God and his gospel would be glorified. So in these verses this morning, we will see the priority of gospel advancement, the power of gospel advancement, the opposition to gospel advancement, and the motivation for gospel advancement. So on, the priority of gospel advancement. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Finally, well, you might see that word and say, really, Paul, finally, you're going to go on for 18 more verses and we're going to have three or four more sermons on this text. Sound like the old Baptist preacher I grew up listening to. But the words here translated Finally, could also just mean a transition. That's the way it's used here. He is transitioning from the passage that Phil taught from last week. We saw in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, 13-17 that God chose the Thessalonians for salvation and that because of God's work on their behalf that they could stand firm, they would stand firm, and they must stand firm. Paul now transitions to an instruction to pray for the spread of the word of the Lord. So, the exhortation, pray for us. First observation I want to make from that is something that Phil has alluded to earlier in this series and something we've seen throughout Paul's letters to churches. This is a a new church, a almost by necessity immature group of believers um, who are young in the faith and, um, as I said, by necessity immature. And this is Paul's. Uh, the writer of much of the New Testament, someone who has was very educated, very skilled, and who God had used in just absolutely miraculous ways to advance the gospel. 
And yet this Paul asked this group of baby Christians to pray for him. Paul's demonstrating his humility, but also the necessity of prayer for the preachers of the gospel. I think it would serve us well to be reminded that the preachers of the gospel that we know and support need our prayer. Phil and Candace and Jared and Kristen and Scott and Aaron and Jay and Melissa and Ryan and Lauren need our prayers. Paul understood that no human can affect the spreading of the word unless it is the power of God working through him. Let us continue. Next, pray for us. Why? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. So what is this word of the Lord that Paul desires would spread? Let's look at a few passages of Scripture that will give us some insight on what Paul is referring to here. Look back a chapter or two, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 2. All right, so we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what manner of man we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us, of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith of God in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. The word that Paul preached all over the world was the gospel. Listen to Acts 8.25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They proclaimed the word of the Lord. And they preach the gospel. This is the, the word of the Lord that Paul is referring to here is the gospel. So let us rehearse for a moment what the gospel is. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. We've all sinned. We all deserve the wrath of God. But what did we see earlier in Thessalonians? Verse Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we could not. He died a sacrificial death that we could not, so that we might have salvation and life in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the word of the Lord that Paul proclaimed. So Paul is praying, in essence, that the gospel would spread ahead and be honored. Paul is, is 
calling on the imagery of the psalmist in Psalm 147. Listen to the words of the psalmist. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. As the Lord controls the spreading of snow and wind and rain, so the Lord controls the spread of his word. Paul is also alluding here to imagery he had used in earlier letters of an athlete running a race. This is not the picture of Paul running the Christian race. No, the picture here is of the gospel itself running the race for the prize. Namely, victory over people's hearts and over false religions and philosophies that have competed with the gospel and formally held people in their grasp. God will demonstrate at the end of time that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the true winner against all competing worldviews and thus is the only true religion and philosophy. This victory has already been accomplished in the Thessalonians, but Paul prays that the gospel would continue to run and to spread and to permeate the world. Now what about this phrase, and be honored? That the word of the Lord, the gospel, would run ahead and be honored. Honored here would also be translated glorified. So how is the gospel honored or glorified? The gospel is honored or glorified by people hearing it and believing it and hoping in it and loving it and being radically transformed by it. We honor and glorify that which we take pleasure and delight in. This is vital. Okay? The gospel is not honored when a person walks an aisle or says a prayer or gets dunked in a pool. The gospel is not honored by people who sit in church every week because they live in the South. The gospel is not honored by people trying to live moral lives. The gospel is not honored by people who give intellectual assent to the truths of the gospel but are not transformed by it. People who are transformed by the gospel are people who love unconditionally, who give generously, and who serve sacrificially. The gospel is honored when people hear it and believe in it and hope in it and love it. I would not imply that this is what everyone should do, but I do want to give a personal testimony of someone I know who... who exemplified what it means to honor and glorify the gospel. I was in San Diego a few years ago, and I met a man in his late 40s. Uh, in his late 20s, uh, he was a highly successful uh, businessman in San Diego. Uh, he was living in a very nice, gated community, had a wife, a couple of young children, and they were doing, by the world's standards, about as well as they possibly could be. Um, everything was going right for them. They were living the American dream. Uh, and one day, this gospel came to him. And it radically transformed his desires and his loves. And he left all of that. And he went to the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And he spent 12 years with the Yembe Yembe people, 
serving, loving, um, away from essentially every American comfort that we've come accustomed to. And he started in Genesis and he taught these people who had never heard anything related to God. They taught it, he taught them who God was. He taught them the story of the Bible and of God's redeeming work through all, out, all of history. And today there is a thriving church that loves and honors and glorifies the gospel because of this man who left everything in San Diego. Again, this is not a picture of for what it means for every one of us who love the gospel. This is what we should do, but it is a picture of how radically it should transform our lives if we truly love the gospel. Now, I think you could say, wait a minute. Should we be praying for the gospel to be honored? I mean, over here on our wall, it says, Redeemer Church exists to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people. Is praying for the glory of the gospel to spread different from praying for the glory of God to spread? I think that's a legitimate question you could raise. However, I want you to think about it with me. As a 14 to 15 year old boy, I was exposed to the Lord of the Rings. I assume most of you here are familiar with it, but if not, it's the story of kings and rings and ultimately the triumph of good over evil. And I loved those stories. I talked about them. I found much joy in them. I delighted them. I honored the stories of the Lord of the Rings. But if you come to me and said, what do you think about J.R. Tolkien in general? I would have said, who? I had no idea who the author of the stories were. I just loved the stories. Contrast that with um, I Never Made It is the autobiography of Jackie Robinson. He was the, he's, and his rise to fr- fame and prominence as the first star first black star in MLB history. It's an inspiring story of uh, what it takes for him to overcome the different barriers to become a star in the MLB. But someone cannot read the story of Jackie Robinson, uh, his autobiography, and take joy in it and delight in it and honor that story without honoring Jackie Robinson. Why? Because... Jackie Robinson is the author and the subject of that book. To take joy in or honor that story is to honor Jackie Robinson. So the gospel is the message from God of God's redeeming work. He is the author and the subject. So to glorify the gospel is to glorify God. Remember what we saw a month or two ago from 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That, that description there, that is how the Thessalonian Christians honored the gospel. They turned from idols to serve and cherish and delight in God. So Paul urges the Thessalonians to pray that the gospel would spread ahead and be honored. Now this is all under the the priority of gospel advancement. So 
I want to read just a couple passages from the New Testament that highlight, again, the priority of prayer for gospel advancement. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Paul in Colossians 4 continues steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of the gospel. And again in Ephesians 6, pray that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So we see the priority of gospel advancement in this request by Paul. But we also see the power of gospel advancement. Namely, prayer and the Word. We've already focused on the Word. It's the Gospel. Now let us press into the reality that God saves His chosen people through the prayers of His people. Now I think we would be remiss here if we did not acknowledge what we've seen in First and Second Thessalonians so far. That Christ has come, that He is coming again, and that He will establish His kingdom. Just last week we saw that God has chosen his elect for salvation and that he will continue to build his kingdom in the church universal until he comes again to bring it to consummation. I mean, the title of this series is Until He Comes, right? Not If He Comes. So we have confidence that Jesus is coming. We have confidence that Jesus is calling his elect. We have confidence that he will build his kingdom and he will build his church. We have confidence that all of this will come to pass so what does prayer do? Short answer. God has chosen to spread his gospel and to save sinners through the prayers of his people. The New Testament is full of commands and petitions to pray for the advance of the gospel in light of, not in spite of, the sovereignty of God. The goal of reaching the entire world with a message of the gospel in light of God's election is seen numerous times in the New Testament. I want to list just a few examples. Jesus in his earthly ministry in Matthew eleven twenty seven, said, All things have been handed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So only the chosen will know God. But in the very next verse, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he extends the invitation to all. Paul in, Roman 9, in Romans 9, this is the Lord speaking. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But then in Romans 10:1, just a few verses later, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. God's sovereignty over the spread of the gospel does not negate our responsibility to pray, nor does it invalidate our prayers as the power of the gospel to save sinners. So again, God's sovereign work of salvation is accomplished through the prayers and the testimony of his people. 
Now, I know there are numerous examples throughout all of Scripture about how God answers prayer. But as I was meditating on this reality of God's sovereignty and how He uses the prayers of His people, I was also reading in the book of Numbers. And I felt it good for us to meditate on this just dramatic example of how God used the prayer of a prayer of one of his people to save the lives of millions of people. So if you're familiar at all with church history or with the, the history of the Bible, in the Old Testament, we know that God preserved the children of Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. And if we look back at that, that span of of God preserving his people, and we ask the question, did God preserve the children of Israel because he chose to or because they were awesome? Like, I think if you know anything about church, the history of the Israelites, you know that they weren't awesome at all. Like, they continually and continually and continually doubted God and essentially spat in the face of God even after he miraculously delivered them. And so another one of these instances comes when they come to the, to the edge of the promised land and they send in the 12 spies to, to search out the land. And the 12 spies come back and say, there's just, like, there's just no way. Like if, if, this is, if this is football, they're the New England Patriots and we're JSU. Like we're just not even in the same league. Not even in the same league. There's just no way. So we're not going to do it. It would have been better if we had just died in Egypt. This is about the hundredth time they've said that since God miraculously delivered them from the Egyptians. So God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to destroy this entire nation and make a new nation out of you. Moses gets on his face and he prays for the people of Israel. He prays that God would spare them. What does God say? He says, I have pardoned according to your word. And God does not destroy the people. I want you to see this dramatic example of how we know, big picture, God preserved the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament because God chose to. But then we look at this specific example of how God used the prayer of Moses in just a radical way to preserve his people. The only hope for anyone is that God in His grace would move to save them. So then it is our privilege and responsibility to pray for God to do His work of redeeming sinners. God not only plans the goal of bringing people to faith in Jesus, but plans prayer as one of the ways in which this goal is to be achieved. Now we're going to look at some of the implications of that in a few minutes. And for now, we're going to pass over that last phrase in verse 1, as has happened among you, and move to verse 2. Read that with me, verse 2. That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, you might see that uh, last phrase, for not all have faith, and think that, that there's some debate as to how that should be interpreted, but I think the best interpretation is to mean that not all have been saved, not all have saving faith. And you might think, Paul, did you really need to tell the church at Thessalonica that not everyone has been redeemed? Like, did no one at the church of Thessalonica have a three-year-old? Like, 
I don't know this from personal experience, but I've been told that a three-year-old will strengthen your belief in the doctrine of total depravity. So why say this? I think it helps us understand the meanings of wicked and evil men, and he uses it to contrast the character of God as faithful in the next verse. So Paul prays that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. Wicked in this uh, verse, the Greek word here actually means out of place. Uh, wicked is a, a little bit of a strong interpretation. It literally just means out of place. And usually when Paul uses this term in the New Testament, he's referring to people who are actually within the church, but who are false teachers or who are living in unrepentant sin. And then that, the other word, uh, evil, just really does mean evil. Uh, so I think we could say that Paul is, is praying for deliverance uh, from not only people who are openly opposing the church and oppressing him and trying to kill him and all those things, but also people who are within the church and covertly opposing the gospel. Um, but then I was, I, you know, I was talking with Phil about this request earlier in the week. Paul prays that they will be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul's praying for deliverance, but we know uh, from other letters, Paul, like in, for example, in Philippians, said to die is gain. So if to die is gain, why is Paul praying for personal deliverance when he's already said that to die is gain? Well, Paul's prayer for deliverance here is not a prayer for personal preservation, but for deliverance and preservation of the message of the gospel. Paul's desire to be preserved physically was so that he could continue to preach and teach the gospel. So Paul requests prayer that the opposition to the gospel would be defeated. Now, I don't think these are the people that Paul had specifically in mind, but in light of, our, in light of the passage and the focus on prayer... Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon on the prayerless church member. A prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth. Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of his brethren, he will be a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Now, in contrast to that, Listen to uh, this quote on prayer in the positive. We can do nothing without prayer. All things can be done by importunate prayer. It surmounts or removes all obstacles, overcomes every resisting force, and gains its end in the face of invincible hindrances. Now we've seen the opposition to gospel advancement. Let's transition to the motivation for gospel advancement. Let's go back to that phrase at the end of verse 1. As happened among you. What happened? The gospel spread rapidly and was glorified in the church at Thessalonica. So they heard the message of the gospel... They responded to the message of the gospel. 
They delighted in and found joy in and treasured and loved and cherished the good news of Jesus Christ. We, we've, we've seen, and we even looked at it earlier this morning, but that we had a whole a message on it earlier in this, this series, just the radical transformation that happened in the church at Thessalonica. How they received with joy, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of affliction, they received with joy the message of the gospel. The gospel totally and completely transformed the church at Thessalonica. So Paul says, remember what the gospel did in you. So, this will be one of four motivations for us to pray for gospel advancement. So, number one is because the number one, number one, the motivation for us to pray for gospel advancement is because of what the gospel has done for you. The gospel has transformed your heart. You have been made new. Your desires and your delights have been radically changed. You now have hope and joy that can withstand any earthly tragedy because God has adopted you into his family. He has given you the promise of eternal delight in his presence. This is what the gospel has done for you. There was a recent article published in Christianity Today. It was somewhat alarming. It found that 47% of millennial practicing Christians think that it is wrong to share one's belief with a person of another faith in hopes that the person will come to to share one's beliefs. 50% of millennial Christians believe that it is wrong to share their belief with someone of another faith. And yet, these same people, 94% of them said that Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to them. They would almost all say, Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me. But yet they turn around and say, I think it's wrong for me to share that with someone of a different faith. Jesus is the, if you've been transformed by the gospel, it is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to you, that ever could happen to you. Why would we not want others to enter into that joy? As we have received the good news of the gospel, so we should pray that the gospel would speed ahead and be glorified. Motivation two. Because God has invited us to be a part of his plan for redemption. This is going back to our discussion on the power of the gospel. God could, with no help from any of us, simply choose to call and redeem all of his elect. I mean, Paul's a textbook example, right? He just comes to Paul and saves him without any aid from any human being. He could do that with everyone. He doesn't need our prayers. But this is not what He has chosen to do. He has invited us in. He's invited us into being a part of the most glorious work that we could ever dream of being a part of. This is a base human desire, isn't it? To be a part of something bigger than yourself. God has invited us into the work of making dead people alive 
of saving the damned, and of redeeming those in bondage. I would certainly hope that most of you in this room want to be a part of the spreading of the gospel to the unsaved. I know that I have this desire and that I've had this desire for many years. However, I know uh, especially back when Nellie Mae and I were both in school, uh, in nursing school, I felt like all we ever did was uh, wake up, go to class, study, take a test, work, sleep, and repeat that cycle over and over and over again. And we were at a Christian school, so we had very little uh, time to interact with other believers. So I know I would often get real discouraged, like, what can I do? How can I advance the gospel to the nations here and now? And what I could have and should have done more of is pray for the advance of the gospel. I think many of you here might have similar feelings. Maybe you're a kid or a teenager here this morning and you think, I just don't have that many interactions with unbelievers. How can I spread the gospel? Or you might be a mom in here this morning and say, raising my children is like having three full-time jobs. I just don't have much time. Or you might have a physical condition or a chronic disease this morning that just makes any extra activity outside your basic responsibilities almost impossible. How can you participate in the spread of the gospel to the nations? Pray. Pray for the spread of the gospel. Pray that it would spread quickly and that it would be honored and glorified in the salvation of sinners. I'll direct you again to our, the Pray Partner Go table we have in the back. This is where we have information that can help inform our prayers, uh, specifically related to the, the missionaries that we have partnered with. Take advantage of that resource. Third motivation, to pray for the advancement of the gospel. Because Christ has commanded you to. Now you might say, well, I prefer positive motivation because Christ said to is a little bit of a cop-out. No, it's not. It's just as much a positive motivation as the first two. Why? Because all the commands of Christ are for our joy. The Spirit did not inspire the writers of the New Testament to simply to write commands simply to test our obedience or restrict our pleasure. No, every command of Christ in the New Testament is for our joy. The commands regarding personal interaction and sexuality and work and evangelism are to lead us into unshakable joy. See, God made your soul and He knows what will ultimately satisfy you and bring you joy. So God has given us inspired commands to guide us into life and joy. So, if you want to experience a greater joy in Christ, pray for the gospel to speed ahead and be glorified fourth and final motivation so that God is glorified as we said earlier the advance of the gospel the glorification of the gospel is the glorification of God himself so that is what we are created to do to glorify our God and Savior so pray for the advancement of the gospel so that God is glorified. Now, just for a few moments, I want to be very practical. 
I know that many of us are very busy. In fact, in our Sunday school hour, we're going through the book crazy busy because we're all very busy. And I, and I understand that and I acknowledge that. And I know that each of you can enter into prayer for the advance of the gospel in your own homes, in your own time that you have available throughout the week. And I would encourage that and I would exhort you to do that. And I would say it's a beautiful thing. However, we believe that the New Testament exhorts us to and tells us there is power in the gathering together of the church to pray. I know that many of you can't come on Wednesday nights. I know I can only come every other Wednesday at best. But if you can, even with minor adjustments to your schedule, come and pray with us on Wednesday nights. We pray for many needs, but we pray for the advance of the gospel. Secondly, in home group, I would urge you to to come to home group and to press into each other's lives in home group and that your time in prayer in home group, in your time in prayer at home group, that you would pray for the advancement of the gospel. And you might be here this morning and, and have never really been exposed to the gospel. You don't believe in the gospel. You don't love the gospel. And you might think that all this talk of praying for the gospel to be advanced is somewhat foreign. Um, but I would urge you to think that, as we said earlier, our motivation, if, if the gospel has so radically transformed us, so given us new hopes, new desires, new loves, new passions, the gospel has done such for us, which should we not pray that the gospel would go forward and be glorified in the world? Now, I think we would be almost remiss to look at this passage and not actually spend time in prayer for the advance of the gospel. And we will do that shortly as Joey leads us. But now, as the the music team comes up, I would leave you with uh, the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we could not and died the death that we deserve so that we could have life in him. And with the motivations to pray for gospel advancement. Because of what the gospel has done in you. Because Christ commands us to. Because it glorifies our Savior. Because Christ has invited us in to be a part of his redeeming plan to call his church to himself.